Welcome to the Antioch Sheffield podcast. We are so glad that you can join us for today's message, which is brought to you by Pastor Todd Roberts. For more information about Antioch Sheffield, head to our website at antiochsheffield.org.uk. Well, he is risen. You know, there are many turning points throughout human history uh, where we can say that life was irrevocably changed. You know, it could be the invention of the printing press, it could be the invention of the combustible engine, or the light bulb, or atomic energy, or the airplane, or the internet. All of these things have, have irrevocably changed life as we know it. But there is no greater turning point than the one that we're celebrating this morning, which is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus is the turning point of all history. The resurrection of Jesus is the foundation of Christianity. Without it, there is no Christianity. Paul put it this way in, uh, in uh, 1 Corinthians 15.4. He said this, If Christ has not been raised, then all our preaching is useless, and your faith is useless. It couldn't have been more clear. He staked the entire authenticity of Christianity on the historical reality of the resurrection. Without it, Christianity crumbles like a house of cards. But Jesus, if you think about it, you know, without the resurrection, Jesus is just another revolutionary who was crucified on a Roman cross along with thousands of others over the centuries. But with it, everything changes. With the resurrection, everything that Jesus taught, everything that Jesus claimed about himself, every promise he made is actually confirmed. And that's why we, are, we make such a big deal out of Easter. Easter authenticates the message of Jesus. Easter is a historical reality that, that all of the Christian faith is based on. And so today, I want to take some time today. You know, we often talk about the resurrection on Easter Sunday, but, but today I, I want to go back and revisit the account of the resurrection from an eyewitness, from someone who was there that first Easter morning. We're going to look at the account of John who was one of the disciples and wrote the Gospel of John. And, and, and he was there on that morning. And I want you to notice some of the details that he includes in this day that changed his life forever. It's a fascinating account. And, and the way he, he, he tells it, just to kind of give you the context before we dive back into the text, is that, is that what's happened is, obviously, as you know, Jesus has been crucified. And, and, and he's died, and he said, it is finished and then it, John tells us at the end of chapter 19 that, that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, two wealthy, secret disciples of Jesus, they went to Pilate and they asked for his body to be released to him, and he granted that. And then they, they took him, and, and they, and they um, hastily prepared his body for burial. And it says that he, they put him in a nearby tomb because Sabbath was about to come. And that's where the story picks up. John gives us the account of Friday. He skips over Saturday. He doesn't tell us anything about it. And then he moves to Sunday, and he writes this. Early on Sunday morning, while it was still dark, 
Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. Mary Magdalene is the first person to enter this story. And it's interesting that John starts with her because she is actually the central character of his telling of the Easter story. She's, it, we see Easter through her eyes. And there's a lot of significance in this that we'll touch on later. But what do we know about Mary Magdalene? What, 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 who is she? Why are we viewing Easter through her eyes? Well, we don't know a lot about Mary, but we do have some really interesting tidbits because she's mentioned 12 times in the four Gospels. In fact, and that's more than some of the disciples are mentioned. In fact, she's mentioned more than any other woman in the Gospels outside of Jesus's own family. So we do get some interesting tidbits about her. But one of the common misconceptions about Mary is that she was a prostitute. A lot of people think that, but there's actually no evidence in the Gospels that that was the case. What we do know about Mary is that she experienced severe demonic oppression. Both the Gospel writers in Mark and in Luke tell us about this. In fact, in Luke chapter 8, early in Jesus' ministry, Luke is kind of setting the scene of what Jesus was up to, and he says this. He writes, Jesus began a tour of the nearby towns and villages preaching and announcing the good news about the kingdom of God. He took his 12 disciples with him, along with some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Among them were Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. Can you imagine that, being oppressed or possessed by seven demons? Now, I don't know what you think about that. I mean, you may not even believe that demons exist, but the Bible was written with the assumption that demons exist and that they could inhabit or possess people, and they cause severe physical disability. They can cause severe mental disability. We get a pretty horrific picture of what it's like to be possessed by demons, and so we don't know exactly what was happening with Mary, but I think in 21st century terms, we would say this is a woman who was struggling with her mental health. She was hearing voices. She, she was a, an outcast from society. She was, everybody thought she was crazy. She'd lost her reputation. And then one day, this Messiah from a nearby town of Capernaum shows up, or this, this teacher, she doesn't know he's the Messiah, but this teacher shows up and, and, and he goes to her village, which is Magdala. That's where we get Mary Magdalene. And she encounters him, and, and we don't, we're not told exactly how it happened, but but it says that Jesus set her free from this demonic oppression. And she went, can you imagine what this moment must have been like from her? To, to go from the, the daily torment that she was experiencing to suddenly being free. To suddenly being, having hope again. To suddenly having life again. To suddenly being able to sleep peacefully at night. To suddenly being able to, to be around other people again and not be seen as an outcast. I mean, everything changed for Mary in that moment. And that explains, I think, her deep devotion to Jesus. We also know from this account that Luke writes that Mary was uh, probably a pretty wealthy woman. Maybe she, she was a part of a wealthy family because he says this. He says that among other women, Mary was contributing from their own resources to support Jesus and his disciples as they were doing these ministry tours. So we don't know how, where she got this money from. Like I said, she was likely from a wealthy family, but she was, she was wealthy enough to help support these ministry tours that Jesus was doing with his disciples. 
And we know that Mary was present at the cross when Jesus died. She, she was an eyewitness to his death. She saw where they laid him in the tomb. She was the first person to arrive at the tomb. All four gospel writers have Mary there first at the tomb on Easter morning. She's the first to discover that the tomb was empty. She was the first to tell Peter and John. She was the first to see the risen Jesus. So Mary shows up there at the tomb early on this Sunday morning while it was still dark. And it says that she came to the tomb and she found it. the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. Now, at first glance, you know, when I first read this a long time ago, I kind of thought, well, that's weird. Who goes to a cemetery by themselves while it's still dark? That's a bit ghoulish, isn't it? I mean, nobody that's up to anything good goes to a cemetery while it's still dark. That, that's by themselves. That's, that's just kind of creepy. But it tells us that she's, she's gone there while it's still dark. Well, why? Why is she there so early? Why is she there on Sunday morning? What's, what's happening here? What all has to do with the Jewish practice of Sabbath. So from Friday night at sunset until three stars are visible in the sky on Saturday night, the Jews practiced what's known as Shabbat or Sabbath. And they would take this whole day, and they were, and they were very, very serious about it. It was a memorial of how God created the, the earth in six days, and on the seventh day he rested, and he told his people to do the same. So they took that very seriously. They had all kinds of laws surrounding Sabbath, which meant you couldn't walk more than a short distance. You couldn't really tend to your animals more than just the very basics. Uh, you couldn't light a fire. You couldn't, uh, if, if somebody died, well, you couldn't mourn. If somebody died on Sabbath, you couldn't do anything. You, you just had to cover them with a sheet and wait until Sabbath was over. There was very strict rules surrounding Sabbath. And so what, what happened here is that Jesus died not long before the Sabbath began. And so Joseph and Nicodemus, they go and they get, Jesus's, they get permission from Pilate to get Jesus' body. They go and they just hastily prepare him for burial. And they throw him in this nearby tomb that was likely just a kind of a temporary thing because basically Sabbath was about to begin and they needed to get home before Sabbath. Otherwise, they were going to break the Sabbath regulations. And so they put Jesus in this tomb, they roll the stone across the entrance, and then they leave him there, likely because they're planning on coming back later to, to move him to a more permanent location. And then everybody, all of Jesus' followers and friends, they just have to sit there for 24 hours and twiddle their thumbs, not even officially being allowed to grieve what they've just seen, the most traumatic event they've ever seen in their lives. And, and, and they're, they're just, they just have to wait there. And we're not told much about what happens, but interestingly, we, we do get a fuller picture as we look at the different accounts of the resurrection in the other Gospels. And so switching to Mark, he tells us what happens. He says, on Saturday evening when Sabbath ended, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome went out and purchased burial spices so they could anoint Jesus' body. So they waited until as soon as, as, soon as uh, the Sabbath was over, they went to the market. They went on a shopping trip, and they went out and they got these burial spices because, come on, be honest, these men aren't going to do a proper job of, of anointing and preparing Jesus' body for burial. These women, they, they wanted to go back, and they wanted to do it right. So they go out as soon as they are able, they buy the spices, and then they go back home, and they await Sunday morning. And then Mark writes, very early on Sunday morning, just at sunrise, they went to the tomb. Now, this is interesting because this seems to be different from what John is telling us. 
But there's actually no discrepancy here if you read the text carefully, both what John writes and what, what Mark writes. But, but it's saying, you know, was it, first of all, was it sunrise or was it dark? Was it just Mary there or were there multiple women there? Well, the word that John uses to describe what we translate it while it's still dark, it actually means the fourth watch of the night, which is from 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. So obviously that, that starts when it's dark and obviously it gets light by 6 a.m. Most, most of the year, right? So probably when they set out, it was dark. When they arrived, they probably arrived at the tomb right around sunrise. And was it just Mary or were there multiple women? Well, as we'll see, I'll show you in a minute. John actually does indicate that there's other women with Mary in, at that moment, but he, he's telling the story from Mary's perspective, so we don't, he doesn't really talk about the other women. So there's actually no real discrepancy here. So here they are. They're, they're walking to the tomb early on Sunday morning. It's still dark, maybe just getting gray in the, in, in the eastern sky, and they're maybe stumbling a little bit over the rocks and on the road, and, and they're having this conversation, and Mark tells us this. He says, on the way they were asking each other, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? <laughs> this is a big problem that they're facing. You see, the tomb is sealed shut, and it's not sealed by a door with a little lock on it. No, it's sealed, as it says there, by, by the stone that, that, that closes off the entrance to the tomb. And, and this stone is this large circular stone, think of like a wagon wheel, that's put in a groove, and it slots in place in front of the entrance of the tomb. Last spring, I was in Israel, and I got to see one of these tombs for myself, and I snapped a picture of it. Um, let's have a look at it here. This is, um, this is just right there by a roadside, and you can see there the entrance to the tomb. It's only about three feet high, and there beside it on the left is the round stone, and you can see that just rolls across the entrance, just drops into place, and that's what seals the tomb. Now, you can't get into it, but you need multiple men using all their strength to roll that thing aside. And you can see why this would be a problem for these women. We don't know how old they were. We don't know how, how strong they were. Tough as I'm sure life was in that time, and as strong as they were, I'm sure rolling that stone proposed a significant difficulty. And so they're asking the question, how are we going to roll this stone aside? And when they arrived, then they arrived at the tomb. And they saw the worst thing they could possibly imagine. Not only did they not have to move the, not only did they have to not move the stone, but the, the stone had already been moved, which could only mean one thing: that grave robbers had come, that something had happened to Jesus' body, that, that maybe the Jewish authorities had confiscated it, that maybe grave robbers had come and taken it. That maybe the owners of the garden where this tomb was had, had moved the body there because it wasn't his tomb. It wasn't prepared for Jesus. So maybe they had moved it. They didn't know where it was. But, but you know, we all read this because we know the end of the story and we think, oh boy, what an exciting moment. No, this was a terrible moment for these women because the tomb that they expected to be full is or, or to have Jesus' body in it and to be sealed shut is now open and Mary must have poked inside and she sees that there's no body there. And this is really bad news for her. This is the worst. This is just adding insult to injury. And it says that Mary just panicked and she took off running. This is one of the reasons I think Mary may, might have been a younger woman because she ran. And let's look at the next verse here. It says that she ran and found Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. Now, let me just say this as a side note here. John, throughout his gospel narrative, refers to himself in the third person for some reason. And I don't know if that was, this was like an attempt at humility, but it cracks me up because every time he does this, it's like a humble brag. He's like, 
you know, she ran and found Simon Peter and the other disciple who I won't name, but was the one who Jesus loved. You know, I mean, you'll see it again here in a minute. John liked to just kind of like mention some stuff at times that, that really just cracks me up. But he, he really believed that he was the one who Jesus loved. I actually think probably all the disciples thought that. Like, I'm his favorite. No, I'm his favorite. John really believed it. And he puts it in his narrative here. But it carries on. She ran and found them. And, and, and then she said, they've taken the Lord's body out of the tomb. And we don't know where they have put him. Notice a couple things here. Notice she's not saying, he's alive, he's risen. No, she still thinks Jesus is dead. She still thinks that he's, he's, he's been stolen. She's not excited about this. This is bad news. She's upset. She's terrified. She's, she's, she's deeply distressed that her Lord, her, her, this man who's meant so much to her, his body is being desecrated, perhaps. And notice there that it says, we. We don't know where they put him. That's the indicator that John gives us. That there's more than just Mary in this story. She's indicating that, the, or he's indicating that there's other women there at the tomb. So, so we don't know where they put him. And so Simon and John, they get the news, and then it carries on. He says, they, they started running for the tomb. And they were both running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. A little humble brag there. I actually won that foot race, everybody. I just want all history to know that I beat Peter to the tomb. Thanks, John. <clears throat> and what happened? He stooped. Remember, this is a low entrance. So he stoops, and he looks in, and he saw the linen wrappings lying there. But he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter arrived and went inside. Simon doesn't hesitate. He just dives right in. And he also noticed the linen wrappings lying there, while the cloth that had covered Jesus' head was folded up and lying apart from the other wrappings. This is interesting. Why, why is John giving us all this detail about the linen wrappings? Well, remember, John is the one who tells us about the, uh, Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And what happens in that moment? You know, Lazarus is dead for four days, and, and after that, Jesus shows up, and he tells them to roll, a stone, this, roll, roll aside the stone, and the King James, I love it, says, Lord, he gets warned by, I believe Martha says, but Lord, he stinketh. What an awesome term. Um, don't do that, Lord. Don't roll it aside. My brother stinketh now. He's de decomposing. But Jesus says, roll the stone aside. So they do it. And he says, Lazarus, come out. And to everyone's astonishment, this man wrapped in linen garments probably hopped his way to the entrance. And, and Jesus says, take the wrappings off him. And, and lead, him, lead him away from here. So, so there's these linen wrappings that he's bound up with. And now Peter is telling us, that, or John is telling us, that, that, that the wrappings are just lying there, and they're, they're, they're nice and neat. And why is he telling us this? Well, this is the first indication that they have that this is not a case of body snatching. This is the first indication they have. This isn't just a, somebody has taken Jesus' body. Because why? Because if they would have stolen his body, they would have just probably taken him with the linen wrappings, which were really valuable. They would have just taken the whole lot, you know, as they were, they were getting away. Or, or, or maybe if they wanted to take the linen wrappings off for some reason, they would have been just laying kind of all over the tomb. They wouldn't have just like folded them neatly and put them away in the corner and then taken his body. So what's happening here? Well, this translation kind of makes it look like they had that, that, that they found the linen wrappings kind of folded up nice and neat and put in the corner. But that's actually not quite what it means. What it means is that it was still in its folds as they had left it around Jesus. And the point is that it's like Jesus had just evaporated 
out of the linen wrappings that they had placed him in. And it just kind of, you know, like maybe like a napkin just kind of like slowly sunk down. And, and it's still there just nice and neat just as they had left him. And it seems that there's something about Jesus' resurrected body that uh, physical boundaries don't pose a barrier to him. It wasn't like he got up and took it all off. He just simply passed through it. In fact, later in John's account, we get a couple of stories of Jesus simply walking through doors. I don't know what's happening there, but something about Jesus' resurrected body, uh, physical boundaries that are boundaries to you and me aren't a boundary to him. So there they are. They, this is, they're, they're seeing this, and, they're, and, and suddenly, as they're looking at these linen wrappings, the penny drops, and he writes this. The disciple who had reached the tomb first, John, also went in, and he saw... He's looking at these linen wrappings, and it, and it clicks, and he believes. For until then, they still hadn't understood the scriptures that Jesus said he must rise from the dead. Then they went home. You know, Jesus, if you read through the Gospels, he says some things that are a bit mysterious at times, things that we're not fully sure what Jesus meant. But he was crystal clear about the fact that he was going to die and rise again on the third day. But no matter how many times he said it, his knucklehead disciples just didn't seem to understand it. They just didn't get it until this moment. This is the first moment that they really finally understand what Jesus has been talking about. This is the first moment they really begin to believe in the Messiah. They really begin to believe that he is who he claimed to be. I mean, they believed it kind of all along, but they weren't really sure who Jesus was, but it was at this moment that everything changed. But then John shifts his narrative back to Mary. It seems like Peter and John took off. Maybe they took the other women with them. They, they're going back probably to, to tell these guys, uh, the rest of the disciples, what had happened. Now remember, they still haven't seen the resurrected Jesus. They, all they know is that the tomb is empty, and, and, and they're starting to believe maybe, maybe this is, Jesus is actually alive, but they don't really know what to make of this fully yet. And they leave Mary there at the tomb, and John writes this. Mary was standing outside the tomb crying, and as she wept, she stooped in and looked, looked in. She saw two white-robed angels, one sitting at the head and the other at the foot of the place where the body of Jesus had been lying because they had like the shelf inside the, inside the tomb. It's like a little room with a little stone bed, and they would have put Jesus on this shelf wrapped in his linen wrappings. Dear woman, why are you crying? The angels asked her. Now, you got to imagine, she's been weeping. I mean, she is in deep distress. She is super emotional. Can you imagine? So, because they've taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they put him. She still doesn't get it. I mean, I, I, this must have been crazy for Mary, because there were, she's already looked in. She knows that the tomb is empty. She knows that Jesus isn't there. Now she looks in again, and there's two angels sitting there. Hello. And, and, and they say, why, why are you crying? And she explains it. And again, notice, she still hasn't figured it out. She still is looking for Jesus' body. She doesn't know where it is. She is upset. She's not happy at this point. John doesn't tell us how this conversation ends. Either the angels just disappeared, or maybe they told her to go home. I, I don't know what happened. But the next thing John tells us is he says, she turned to leave and saw someone standing there. Now, she doesn't know who it is, but John tells us it was Jesus. But she didn't recognize him. Now, that's weird. Why doesn't she recognize him? There's different 
accounts after, there's at least two other accounts in the Gospels after the resurrection where Jesus disguises himself, where his, he, he's disguised from his followers. People that should know him don't know him. Why? Well, it could be that, that Jesus' appearance has been changed through the whole process of being brutally tortured and crucified and being resurrected. Maybe he just looked a little different physically. Or it could just be that there was like supernatural blinders on their eyes and they just were prevented from recognizing him. But at least in Mary's case, I think there's probably a simpler explanation. <laughs> I think she'd been through the most traumatic 48 hours of her life, or 72 hours, however long it had been since Jesus had, had you know, been arrested and, and tortured and then crucified. I mean, all of this stuff, this is, this is the most dramatic experience of her entire life, and she's emotional. You know, and now the body's missing and she's more emotional. And then she's encountered two angels and that's, she's even more emotional. This is, this is a traumatic thing. She's distressed. And her eyes are full of tears. And I just think she was a little distracted and she probably didn't like, look to see who it was. She just assumes it's a gardener. And Jesus asked her the same question that the angels asked her. He said, dear woman, I love that. Dear woman, this little term of endearment. Why are you crying? Who are you looking for? She thought he was the gardener. Sir, she said, if you have taken him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will go and get him. Still, she's, she's looking for the body. And then Jesus says her name, Mary. And there was something about the way that Jesus said her name that she recognized and the, and the person that she least expected to see, she looks up, and her eyes maybe clear a little bit, and there he is. The one that, that she worshipped, the one that had set her free, there he is. She thought he was dead, but now he's alive. And so she turned to him, and she cried out, Rabboni, which in Hebrew means teacher. And, and I think she just ran to him and embraced him like a mother embracing a lost child. She's holding him like, hey, I've lost you once. I'm never going to lose you again. And she's clinging to him and just rejoicing that he's alive. And suddenly, you know, these tears of sorrow, all the weight of grief just lifts off of her. And she is full of joy. And she is rejoicing. And this is like the most joyful moment of her entire life. I think that explains the next verse, because the next verse at first glance seems a little bit strange. Jesus says, don't cling to me, for I haven't yet ascended to the Father. But go find my brothers and tell them I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Now, if you just read this at, at first glance and, and you're not thinking about the context, this can seem really callous and cold from Jesus. It, it, it could read like, you know, Mary's here having this really emotional moment. She's, she's crying. She's, she's rejoicing. There he is. She's so excited. And Jesus is like, don't cling to me, Mary, for I have not ascended to my father. But go and tell my brothers. No, that's, this is the limitation of this type of text is, is we don't know how long, what, what happened. He's not, John doesn't tell us every detail. We don't know the full conversation that was happening here. We don't know how long it was before he actually said this. We don't know how he said it. We don't know his tone of voice. We don't know his facial expression. I think Jesus was 
overjoyed at this moment. I mean, the man has just overcome death. He's just gone and, 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 and defeated death. He's brought freedom to humanity. The, he's, re- the, he's done the work that he came to do. This cloud that was hanging over him of what was approaching is finally lifted. I think Jesus is smiling. I think he's happy. I think he's rejoicing. I think when Mary comes to, to embrace him, he embraces her back. He gives her a hug, and there's laughter, and there's celebration, and there's reunion. And I think after a long time, Jesus finally says, okay, okay, Mary, Mary, you don't have to cling to me. You don't have to cling to me. Listen, I'm not ascending to the Father yet. We've still got time. You're not going to lose me. But listen, the process of me returning to my Father has begun, and I want you to go to the disciples. I want you to go to my brothers. He gives her a commission and says, I want you to go and tell them. Tell them that I'm alive. And so she goes. And Mary Magdalene found the disciples and told them, I have seen the Lord. And then she gave them his message. Mary Magdalene, this demonized woman, this woman who was crazy, was an outcast, was mentally ill, now becomes the very first evangelist now becomes the very first person to see the risen Jesus. And she becomes the first person to proclaim it, to proclaim to the, the, the world, to these disciples and through them to the world, I have seen the Lord. Jesus is alive. He is risen. Oh, it's beautiful. I get chills when I think about it. But why does John tell us the story this way? Why why does he tell us the story through the eyes of Mary Magdalene rather than his own vantage point? I think he he wants us to see a few things. First of all, if you compare this account to the first three chapters of Genesis, there's a lot of parallels. I'll just mention a few. You know, sin comes into the world through a garden. And now in a garden, the redemption of all mankind transpires. And who did the devil talk to in that garden? Who was he working on and seducing? It says that he was talking to the woman. And now, here in another garden, another woman is seeing the undoing of all the sin that happened in that first garden. And she becomes the mouthpiece to a watching world. And this is so significant, too, because Mary, being the first person to see Jesus, this is is kind of unheard of. In antiquity, because in the Greco-Roman world, a woman's testimony didn't amount to much. In fact, in in the Greco-Roman world, a woman couldn't testify in court. In the Jewish culture, you had two women uh, had to testify to equate the testimony of one man. Now, that's offensive to us here in the 21st century, and it should be. But you got to put yourself in the mind of first century readers. Because if you were inventing a story about Jesus, if this was just a myth or a legend that you were trying to tell to make Jesus into something that he wasn't, that you would not put a woman as the primary witness to Jesus' resurrection. That would discredit your whole narrative. They'd be like, what? A woman? They're all emotional. You can't trust them. But all four Gospels put Mary Magdalene there in the garden, the first person to see the resurrected Jesus. Why? Because that's what happened. It's a powerful apologetic that this narrative is true because, because they wouldn't make this up. They wouldn't, if they were making this up, they would have had a man be there. They would have had Peter. They would have had John. 
or the other disciple, as he liked to call himself. But they put Mary there because that's what happened. And I think John also wants us to see the story through Mary's eyes because Mary's story is the gospel in a nutshell. Mary, she, she, she was oppressed by darkness. She was living without hope. She, she was powerless to overcome the, the darkness that she was living in. And then one day this man turns up and somehow sets her free and gives her a new life. And in the same way, all of us in one way or another are living under the power of sin and darkness. And we're hopeless. It's impossible for us to set ourselves free. But Jesus, through his death and resurrection, has made it possible for us to be forgiven of our sins, to be reunited to, be God, to, to God, to, to be set free from, from all the chains of the enemy. Mary's life is the gospel in a nutshell. So this morning as we close, how do we respond to this? First of all, if you're a follower of Jesus, I want you to remember the fact that Jesus has set you free. That, that, that forgiveness is yours. You know, somehow, sometimes we can kind of take this for granted. It becomes familiar information. We forget all about it. Or we, we, it doesn't impact us emotionally anymore. But I want you to remember this morning that, that you were once, maybe, maybe you weren't oppressed by seven demons, but all of us have faced the sentence of death and eternity separated from God. And Jesus entered into your life and he gave you a hope and a future. And that is something to rejoice in today. But secondly, I want to say that, that maybe we need to do the same thing that Mary did. To go and tell someone. You know, all of us found out about Jesus because someone told us. Maybe it was a parent, a friend, a relative. Somebody did it for you. So who do you need to do it for in the days and weeks ahead? Who can you tell about your experience with Jesus? Secondly, if you're here this morning or if you're watching online and you wouldn't say you're a Christian, I want to say today is the day that that can change. You know, maybe you would say after the past year that we've been in that you're depressed, you're stressed, you're discouraged. Maybe you're caught up in an addiction that you can't get free of. Maybe you feel oppressed by the enemy in some very real way. Well, what I want you to know today is that Jesus can set you free. And it just comes through an act of faith and surrender. And so in a moment, I'm going to pray a prayer and give you the opportunity to do that. And, and, and if you want to take a step towards Jesus today, I want to encourage you to pray this prayer. Now, there's nothing magic about this prayer. It's just a simple uh, suggested way that you can express your heart to God. But when you just simply open your heart to God and say, Lord, I'm yours, I'm surrend I, I surrender myself to you. What it tells us is that, that Jesus comes and he fills our hearts and he gives us a clean heart and a new start. He gives us a hope and a future. He reconciles us to God, and life is never the same from that day forward. So if you want that this morning, then, then just pray this simple prayer with me. Jesus, today I acknowledge my need for you. I recognize that I can never rescue myself, but only you can rescue me. So today I put my hope and faith in you, and what you accomplished for me on the cross. I turn from my sin, and I surrender my life to you. Fill me with your spirit, and help me to follow you 
all of my days. Amen. If you just pray that prayer with me, I want you to know that all of heaven rejoices over you. (laughs) I just want you to do one thing. I'm not going to ask you to do anything embarrassing, but I do want to ask you that if you've just prayed that prayer with me, I want you to tell somebody, whether it's somebody that you came with, or if you're watching at home, somebody that you live with, or or if you don't know who to tell, you can just send us a message at at our, uh, email us at ivedecided at antiochsheffield.org.uk. We would love to hear from you. See, there's something about telling somebody else about your decision that solidifies that that decision in our own hearts. So I want to encourage you to tell somebody today about that decision that you've made. And tell us, we would love to hear from you. But for the rest of us, as we close, I I want to just uh, wrap this up in prayer. And if the worship team could come on up to lead us in our final song. Heavenly Father, thank you that you have not abandoned us to darkness, Lord, but you have transferred us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light by the blood of your son, Jesus. And Lord, we just say thank you. Thank you this morning for setting us free. Thank you for giving us a hope and a future. Thank you, Lord, that, that your goodness and your love was displayed for us on the cross and your power was displayed in the resurrection. And then you've conquered death. You've conquered sin. You've conquered the power of the enemy. And Lord, for anyone today who is struggling this morning, I pray that the power of the resurrection of Jesus would flood their lives this morning and set them free. Lord, let us never grow callous or indifferent to this great truth, but let us be filled with hope every day of our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening today. To listen to more messages like this one, head to our website at antiochsheffield.org.uk forward slash podcast. We are looking forward to seeing you soon.